uh, it's maybe it's appropriate that this talk doesn't fit so easily into the schedule because it actually maybe doesn't fit so easily into the conference as a whole because um, most people I think who are here are interested in philosophy and engineering in the sense of uh, philosophy um, of engineering and quite reasonably too I mean, it's a very interesting topic but um, this um, talk is fits into philosophy and engineering but not in the sense of philosophy of engineering but rather looking at the other direction, ways in which engineering may assist philosophy rather than philosophy provide an analysis of engineering or may assist in, in, in helping engineers think about what they're doing. The other way around, how can engineering help philosophers do what they're doing? And we've already heard some people um, today, there are some parallel sessions, so you might not have been at um, those talks, but at least I've been to some talks today that explicitly address this. But I want to, that, just to let you know where I fit into the general uh, issues of, in this conference, in this workshop. Um, so the title is Engineering for Conceptual Change. I'm just going to, as a quick overview, tell you where I'm headed and then I'll give details later. So uh, it seems to me that some problems aren't empirical, they're conceptual. To resolve these problems, you don't need to get more data. You actually need to do something, readjust the way you look at the world or observe some features of uh, ways that you look at the world come up with new ways of looking at the world. And I would call those conceptual problems requiring a conceptual solution. And sometimes, this is the more less trivial claim that I'm going to argue for, is that sometimes solving conceptual problems requires not just manipulating concepts that you already possess, but actually requires the acquisition of new concepts. And that's really where um, uh, where engineering might come in because sometimes acquiring new concepts, that is the concepts you need to solve this conceptual problem, sometimes acquiring them requires more than just thinking or recombining concepts you already have sitting in your armchair smoking your pipe. It actually re requires you to experience the world in a particular way, not a pa necessarily a passive way um, of, ex of experiencing the world, but experiencing the world as um, the result of your interventions in the world, acting in the world. And so that's how engineering can come in, because engineering is, at least in part, a way of intervening in the world. And design and construction of devices, in particular, I think, is one way in which you can engage in the world, engage with the world, have a particular kind of experience that will enable the acquisition of new concepts that will resolve some conceptual problems in philosophy. So that's how I think engineering may assist philosophy. Um, I'll give as an example of this some work uh, being done at Sussex and at Bristol on a engineering a particular device called the inactive torch. Uh, that's what the latest prototype looks like. It's a distal to tactile sensory substitution device. It's uh, an ultrasonic sensor um, that measures the distance to near uh, the to an object that it's aimed at, uh, or surface it's aimed at, and as output, uh, the user receives a single tactile, uh, uh, could be rotary, or but the one I've used is um, uh, vibrational output. Um, so the closer the closest surface is to the uh, to the input of the device, the stronger the vibration in your hand. And there's somebody using it there. 
Um, the point of this device, I mean, there have been lots of sensory substitution devices before, but this one has been engineered solely for the purpose of solving conceptual problems in the phenomenology of perception. It hasn't been engineered to assist the blind in getting around, uh, that could be used for that. Um, but it's been designed for uh, the purpose of what I'm talking about today, um, resolving some conceptual problems through um, construction of artifacts. So it seems to, I should, I, I might slip into saying um, me or I, but uh, you know, this is a joint work. I, I tend to be doing the more philosophical aspects and Adam Spears is doing the more engineering aspects, but Tom Froese in particular is the one out of the three of us who's doing both the philosophy and the engineering. So um, uh, I'll sometimes, I might slip and say, uh, it seems to me that, or uh, I, I'm not, we haven't decided how to, how to divide up. Um, um, I, I'm not sure what I'm going to say here, how much of it the other two people would agree to. Um, but I'll just say, um, uh, for the rest of the talk, I'll just say I, but you can, uh, I'm not taking credit for all of this research. So it seems to me that uh, you could, there are three ways that you could engineer for conceptual change. One involves what we call the design loop. That's, uh, that is uh, the case of designing and building artifacts that do something so that the very experience of designing and building the artifact can prompt conceptual change. And I won't be focusing on that in this talk. There's also a kind of use loop where you design and build artifacts and if you use these artifacts that, say, give you new experiences of something else, why, then it'll give you new concepts about why. And I won't really be talking about that use loop either. Instead, I'll be focusing on this other kind of use loop. The star should come up there soon. Oh, well. Um, I'll be focusing on this use loop, where you design and build artifacts that give, you, that give you new experiences of why, but the reason why you're doing that is because you want to develop new concepts of experience itself, or the perceptual process itself. So it, this is the, uh, the case that we'll be looking at with the um, inactive torch. So let me go back a bit and say a little bit about what I'm, how I'm conceiving of philosophy and solving conceptual problems. Um, it seems to me that uh, philosophy, and in particular I mean analytic philosophy, provides methods for conceptual analysis and development. And so I am really only focusing on analytic philosophy here. I think there might be ways in which um, continental philosophy, even though I'm not a continental, continental philosopher, it seems to me that they might be ahead of analytic philosophy in this respect in that they've recognized for a longer time uh, that experience and engagement with the world might be crucial to one's um, philosophical analysis of it. Whereas analytic philosophers tend to want to draw a sharp divide between a priori questions and a posteriori questions. And they're only concerned with the a priori questions, ones that can be uh, answered, knowledge which you can um, have independently of experience. Uh, whereas maybe the continental philosophers aren't so dogmatic about insisting that their discipline proceeds independently of, of experience. So, I'm analytic philosophy's self-conception is mainly my target here. As traditionally conceived, and I'll agree with this, conceptual analysis is really exclusively propositional. What do I mean by that? Well, analysis assumes that you have some, or you already have some stock of basic concepts, and these are going to remain static throughout the period of analysis. And you can. Um, solve problems by putting these concepts together in different ways, say to form propositions, truths, conjectures, proofs. 
Or you can create new concepts which don't form propositions, but they form complex concepts. Um, like the concept of a bachelor, for instance, might be an unmarried man. Or the concept of a free action might be the, combine the concepts of freedom and the concepts of action. Um, but really, that's the idea, is that you conceptually, it's static. Or if it's not static, at least it's built out of some static fragment, primitive fragment. Well, I think there are limits to this approach in that sometimes solving a conceptual problem requires concepts that aren't in your basic stock, nor can they be composed logically out of concepts in your basic stock. Therefore, you won't be able to, just through this form of analysis, come up with a solution, construct the proposition that, is, that reveals the truth. Um, if that's the case, then uh, it looks like we need methods that aren't available to analytic philosophy. And I think it should be obvious, well, I've already told you what I think the, the, the change in method I'm going to look at is. It's looking at how you can um, acquire new concepts so that your stock of basic concepts isn't fixed but changes. For instance, I think uh, Thomas Nagel was making this kind of point when he said the following about the mind-body problem. He said, we may hope and ought to try, as part of a scientific theory of mind, to form a third conception, the first two being concept of mind and the concept of the physical, a third conception that, that does directly entail both the mental and physical and through which their actual necessary connection with one another can therefore become transparent to us. Right now, it, this is not the case. We have this problem, the explanatory gap, the hard problem, whatever. Um, so Nagel is proposing something that I've uh, in independently backed, the idea that the way to solve that problem is to come up with another concept that uh, allows us to see the connection between the mental and physical because we can't do that with the current concepts. Such a conception will have to be created. We won't just find it lying around. And I would say in addition, it won't be created just by uh, logically combining the concepts we already have. We need to construct a new concept that isn't a logical combination of our concepts we already possess. So, um, I think this, this extension of the analytic method, analytic method plus means of acquiring new concepts, I still think it should be considered philosophical. In other words, ultimately, the purpose of uh, acquiring these new, new, new concepts is to do analysis traditionally conceived. And it's still to the point of them is to solve problems that are rightly viewed as philosophical. Um, so it's not that I'm saying we need to do that philosophy is flawed. I'm just saying we need to understand that philosophy has to has, has ignored uh, part of its uh, remit, which is to get the right concepts in addition to doing the right conceptual analysis with the concepts you have. So how do we go about doing this? Well, the view that I'm going to put forward I call interactive empiricism. It's like concept empiricism in that it's uh, noting that the acquisition of at least some concepts requires having certain kinds of experience. Familiar view from, uh, say, Locke, although uh, the empiricists are usually extremists about this. They insist that all concepts must be grounded in sense experience. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying maybe some concepts are grounded in experience. But in addition to that tr traditional view of concept empiricism, I'm adding that um, Look, the kinds of experiences that are crucial for acquiring some concepts aren't just passive receptions of data, but rather they're the kind of experiences you have 
when you're engaging with the world, when you're acting. And the analogy I like to use here, I don't have time to go into detail, but the analogy I like to use here, and I've used a, at, a, at a, a meeting um, here at the Royal Academy of Engineering a, a, a year and a half ago or so, is um, from experimental work by Helen Hine on um, kittens. So I can't go into a lot of detail, but the point is that kittens that receive visual input as a natural result of them interacting with the world, moving around, their, their visual systems develop normally. Kittens that receive roughly the same uh, kind of visual input, but it's given to them not because it's the result of their physical actions, but just because it was recorded, say, from another kitten's interactions with the world. Those kittens don't learn how to see the world. So it's not just the data you receive. It's the data being received in res response to the interacting or acting in the world or moving in the world in a particular way. That's the kind of experience I'm talking about, not just data. So, on this view, concepts are like the ability to see, like kittens, some kittens acquire. Um, they're skills. And that goes back to, say, um, at least Wittgenstein, to, say, to see abilities to think certain thoughts that are actually capacities. They're skills that you can acquire. And I think, like skills, they sometimes, at least, cannot be acquired discursively, propositionally. They can't be acquired, sometimes at least, just by reading a book. So uh, they have to be acquired by experiencing the world, just like you can't learn to ride a bicycle entirely by reading about it. Maybe somebody has been able to do that, um, but I think in general you can't. Um, so also the concepts I'm thinking about here are ones that might be crucial to solving some philosophical problem, but can't be learned just by reading a book. So this provides a role, I think, for engineering in philosophy. So the suggestion here is that the that we engineer devices that per permit new kinds of experience, experience of the active form I'm talking about, which in turn will enable acquiring concepts that allow you to solve a philosophical problem. So I'm not just talking about technology here, because for, for a couple reasons. One is, some kind, sometimes the experiences that are required are experiences that you get from designing and building the artifact itself. You're not just using someone else's technology. I've set that aside for this talk. Instead of focusing on technology, maybe that you didn't build yourself, but it's important that your use of it as a philosopher is fed back into the design of the item so that it can be honed in to better reveal the philosophical insights you're, trying, you're striving for and give you the right kinds of concepts. The, an engineer isn't going to be able to, unless they already have solved the philosophical problem, they're not going to be able to know on their own what kind of device is going to be uh, crucial for resolving the philosophical problem. And therefore, there'll have to be a close collaboration, if not between two people, maybe within the same person, um, between the uh, philosophical concepts learned and the required and the design of the system. So to go back to this slide, I just want to remind you I'm focusing on, the on this third idea here, the idea that you um, of building artifacts that give you new experiences so that you come up with better concepts of what experiences are like, or in this case, perceptual experiences. So here's uh, a bit about the actual design of the inactive torch. Um, it was a closely coupled interaction between first-person experience, phenomenology, so it's, it's uh, disciplined, trained first-person experience, philosophically informed experience, and engineering of the device. For example, the initial output was a rotational disk. 
rather than a vibration. And you could feel the position of this rotational disc under your thumb. And then it was basically noted by using the device that that didn't give the kind of um, uh, out thereness of the of the, the sensory substitution uh, that the that uh, Tom in particular wanted in order to do the kind of phenomenology he wanted to do. So he told Adam, you know, they talked, tried to figure out a new design, and they came up with a, a design that used vibration. And it turns out that the vibration uh, did have the effect uh, that Tom wanted of of actually feeling. When it's a shame uh, I don't have the. Uh, Given, especially given what I say about you needing to use the device, it's ironic, in fact, that I don't have the device here for you to use, because uh, then you could um, experience for yourself how, uh, by using the device after a while, uh, you can feel corners, say, and they feel like they're distant rather than, it's not just a, pat a pattern of vibrations in your hand, you actually um, feel um, a world located outside of you something that, uh, in particular, Igor has uh, talked about uh, being crucial to experience. Um, so here we have a redes redesigning, taking into account the phenomenological needs of the philosopher. Um, so the idea here is to apply the inactive torch to conceptual problems in the philosophy of perception. And in particular, Tom Frozer was interested in addressing the question, to what extent is perception independent of action? And traditional views of perception have been, well, completely independent. Um, it doesn't matter. You don't need to act in order to perceive. You can just be a passive, uh, how much is that? Ten five. OK. <laughs> you can be a passive uh, receiver of data and still be, um, that is, not act at all and still be a passive receiver of data. But the kind of theories that Tom has been uh, interested in are inactive theories that say, Perception is, in essence, action. It's a kind of action or requires action, in, um, at least in some way. And this point can be hard to grasp. I'm certainly not going to try to explain inactive theories of perception here. That's not really the point of my talk. I'm just giving you an, an idea of the kind of issues that um, Tom is trying to <coughs> resolve using the inactive torch. But the point is that um, by using the inactive torch, the idea that action is a key part of perception can be made more vivid than um, perhaps just reading about it in a book and can allow maybe reconceptualizing the very nature of, of perception itself. So Tom said when demonstrating the inactive torch at conferences, he initially tried to explain this theory, these theories, these inactive theories of perception first before handing over the device. And this is because he originally conceived of the device as something that could inform the debate in the, about inactive perception in the cognitive scientists. And most people that he was talking to had never heard about that particular position, as I'm sure a lot of you haven't. Um, but he goes on to say, um, however, it soon became clear that this theoretical introduction was not only unnecessary, it was even confusing to most people. That instead, it was, well, basically, how do you convey a cognitive science research program in a few sentences to someone who has no idea of what cognitive science even is? So if I have failed to tell you what the inactive theory of perception is, then I've succeeded in proving Tom's point here, right? Um, it is difficult. It was only after using the device that many people had an aha moment. Now they could grasp the idea that embodied action is important for perception. The idea is here is, here is that um, uh, there's nothing in just the vibration right now that tells you anything about the world. Okay, it tells you one thing, the, how far away the closest surface is. The point is that as you act and move the, um, the inactive torch around, you get patterns over time of vibration 
that are um, patterns given by your that are related to your actions, and it's that interplay between your action and the patterns you get back that reveals a whole set of surfaces to you and allows you to perceive the room or the things in it, rather than the bit that you're getting right now. The analogy is meant to be with vision. It's the same with vision. We think that we're actually getting the information about the world right now, but we're not. It's the, the data we get as a result of interacting that, that is moving our eyes around that really is, can, can constitutes our experience. So I'll try to finish up now. Um, so eventually he just hardly explained the device or the theory at all and just gave it to people and that actually turned out to be a better approach. And I'll whiz through these design constraints that um, engineering the inactive torch uh, had to take into account. Had to be portable, had to be intuitive. We didn't want it to require people to use vision. We didn't want to focus on, say, the color of surfaces, but rather just their distance. We wanted the resolution to be high enough to enable you to actually feel it, um, but low enough that that point I just made was possible, that um, you could see that action was crucial and not um, the data you were receiving at any one time. And it had to be cheap. Um, so our, finally, to close up, we have some proposals about what to do next. We're thinking about coming up with some way to empirically measure the extent to which engineering such a device can change one's concepts. So we want to give people questionnaires before and after using the device and see if we can measure the degree to which they've undergone some type of conceptual change in the area of perception. And we have to make sure we use proper controls. Um, uh, this is ex similar to experimental philosophy, but I think it's crucially different in that we're emphasizing conceptual change, which isn't an emphasis in experimental philosophy, and we're actually, uh, the experimental condition is the presence of an artifact that we've engineered. It isn't just, say, telling subjects some story and seeing, uh, experimental philosophy typically tells subjects two different stories and see how their philosophical intuitions differ depending upon which story they've heard. Um, so, fine, uh, yeah. And then I've already made this point. Sometimes it might be best if the philosopher who's undergoing conceptual change is the very person who's doing the design. And um, the problem that there is that it would be harder to measure, um, like we're planning to do with the case of the, the second use loop. But the proof will be in the pudding. And it will be in the eating track. So here's some Yeah, I was very good, I enjoyed it, and I don't disagree with anything I think, except what was it? Um, 